We are in part five of a teaching series that we're calling Praying Like Jesus. And I hope that today helps to grow our prayer life. That's what this has been all about. That's what we've been talking about. And uh, so throughout the series, we've said that uh, prayer is a, is a universal thing. Probably everybody in this room has prayed. Everybody that you come into contact with has prayed some kind of prayer uh, to somebody along the way, right? So at the very beginning of this series, we said that, first of all, prayer is not a button to be pushed. The idea that if, you know, we get, if we pray the right way, if we pray often enough, if we pray hard enough, if we'll be able to then push the button, get the outcome we're praying for. We said that prayer is not a button to be pushed, but it's a relationship to be pursued. So we've taken some time early on in this series to uh, just work through what we know as the Lord's Prayer as we find it in Matthew 6 and Luke 11. And then we talked about what do we do when God is late in responding to our prayers? And then last time we talked about what do you do when God just says no? Today, uh, as we continue this series on prayer, and we're nearing the end, we're looking for a place to land here in the next couple of weeks, we've talked a lot these last few weeks about what we can expect from God when it comes to our prayer life. So today, we're going to talk about our responsibility in light of prayer. And honestly, might surprise you, but I hope you'll just stay engaged and hang with me all the way. Do whatever you got to do to keep your mind just kind of right here for the next 30, 35 minutes or so. Today, we're going to look at a, a kind of a bit of an obscure story in the Old Testament that takes place in the book of Joshua in chapter 7. Here's what we're going to discover in case you have to leave early or you're wondering if this has any relevance to you or if you should even bother investing any intellectual and emotional energy in this. This story is about at least three different groups of us. <clears throat> the story addresses those of us who have a tendency to hide behind our prayers. Here's what I mean. To mask our irresponsibility with prayer. And we've all probably done this a time or two where we feel like we're being irresponsible. So what do we do? We pray. And, and someone points out our irresponsibility. And so, so we're like, oh, I know, I know. Thanks for pointing that out. I'm praying about that. And in fact, this is something that churchy people like me tend to do. We tend to hide behind our prayers. In fact, if you're not a Christian or you're not even a religious person, one of the things that you might not like about the religious people that you know is that they are some of the most irresponsible people that you come into contact with because they're just so holy and they're just always praying about stuff. And that's kind of all that you see. And it makes you think maybe you need to quit praying now and do something. So we're going to talk about that. Another group this story in Joshua 7, I think, addresses is those of us who have what I'm just going to call misguided compassion. Misguided compassion is when you are a compassionate person, but you apply it in a way that isn't healthy or helpful. When you see people uh, act irresponsibly, and instead of holding them accountable, you're like, ah, and you come up with all these reasons uh, why it's okay for them to have acted that way. Well, he got off to a tough start, or she's not as smart as everybody else in the, in the class. He didn't come from a good home, or whatever. And by thinking this way, we actually start to facilitate irresponsibility, because uh, irresponsibility is a communal thing. Everyone associated with that person is eventually affected by the irresponsibility that we tend to make excuses for. So that's what I mean when I, talk, when I say misguided compassion. Third group of people in this story in, in Joshua that I think addresses is a group who would say, you know that whole um, sowing and reaping thing, you know, and like reaping the seeds maybe that someone else has sown. 
So it's kind of like, I feel like I've sown all the right seeds in my life, but I'm, I seem to be reaping the crop sown by my husband, my wife, my ex, my parents, my children, my boss, whatever the list goes on. And somehow I'm reaping the crop sown by their irresponsibility. I've done my part, but somehow I'm connected all around me. I'm connected to these irresponsible people, and now I'm reaping what they've been sowing. This doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem fair. There are people who are kind of, these are people kind of tired of taking responsibility for other people's irresponsibility. I don't know if you've ever been there, but it's just not fair, right? This story addresses this too. Let me give you some context. The book of Joshua is about, um, anybody want to guess who maybe the main character is? You are on it today. The leader of Israel, leading the Israelites out of the wilderness, across the Jordan River, finally into the promised land. Moses is dead. Joshua is now their leader. He's established himself as a military leader, and he's leading the nation of Israel into the promised land. This whole story creates some angst for those of us who read this story through our modern filter, because essentially, he's leading the nation of Israel, a couple million people, into a land where people have been living for generations, and they're going to run everyone off, or worse yet, kill them as they take their land. So if you read these stories, and you just take them at face value, and this doesn't make you ask questions, I wonder if you're really comprehending what you're reading, because this kind of stuff ought to make you ask some questions. So there's a chance that you read this, and you're like, wow, I don't want God to be like this. Let me just explain this once for all, okay? Not really. I'm going to attempt to give some context. (laughs) About 650 years before this story happens, God says to Abraham, he says, I'm going to make you a great nation. And Abraham's like, that sounds great, but you're going to have to hurry because like, I have no kids and I'm really old. So God gives Abraham a son, and his son has a bunch of sons. And then because of a famine and some terrible behavior by Abraham's great-grandsons, they end up in Egypt. And while they're in Egypt, the nation that God uh, promised finally begins to grow. And they got their start as a slave nation under Egyptian rule. And the Israelites live under the Egyptians for 400 years until God commands Moses to bring them out. And now, after 40 years in the wilderness, Joshua is essentially bringing the Israelites back home where God intended for them to dwell. And when they left 400 years before, it might have been 100 people, a couple hundred people. Now they're coming back with a couple million people. The process is going to be difficult, and it is going to be messy. And it's going to be misunderstood at the time and for hundreds or even thousands of years afterwards because there's a dynamic in the Old Testament that it just is not emotionally satisfying. God's promising the nation of Israel uh, and bringing the nation of Israel into the promised land. And in doing so, he makes it clear, got a long list of things here. Don't want you to marry these pagans. I don't want you to take their cattle. I don't want you to take their gold or their silver. I don't want you Israelites to have anything to do with these people. We're going to do something brand new. The only way to do it is for you to move in, become a completely separate nation with a completely different worldview, completely different identity, and a completely new sense of justice and a new view of what civilization is. And I don't want you to be influenced by these people. I don't want you to be persuaded to the way they view the world. So we've given them lots of time. Don't think I just like snapped my fingers. There's a reason they had 400 years. We've given them 400 years to repent and change their ways. But since they haven't, now we're going to destroy them. Because what we're doing here is laying the groundwork for the coming Messiah. Israel, your Savior. The one who would restore your relationship with the Creator and restore creation 
to God himself. That's what this is all about. So God orders the Israelites to push the pagan nations out and take them over. And he's like, because I've given them a chance. Over 400 years have come and gone, and they've had their chance. Now, this is a culture that has to be eradicated. That's kind of the backdrop of the story. So whether we, uh, whether we feel at peace with what, how we understand that, whether that you know, gives you the willies or whatever, it's not a warm, fuzzy story, I understand that, but that is the backdrop. So God, through Joshua, is leading the nation of Israel into Canaan finally, and the first thing they come up, to is, is come up against is the city of Jericho. You remember the story? How many of you know the story of Jericho? Just kind of, I want to know how many Bible scholars I have in the room. Okay. They walk around the city a few times over the course of a few days. They're just walking, you know, and blowing their trumpets like for days. Finally, they're walking and blowing their trumpets, and then they let out a shout, and the walls of the city fall down, and they walk in and take the city. So the Israelites win the battle of Jericho. It wasn't much of a battle, and God made that very easy for them. And the reason for that was God wanted them to know, you've got to depend completely on me, okay? Don't depend on your army, because this doesn't even make, you should not have been able to defeat Jericho, let alone this way. So don't depend on your military uh, expertise. Don't depend on your own abilities. So the next city that they're going to come up against and encounter is the city of Ai. And compared to Jericho, Ai was a little, little town. And at this point, there was something that uh, Joshua as their leader, didn't know. God was very, very clear going into Jericho. When you go into Jericho, don't take anything. Don't take those traditional spoils of war. Don't take them. Don't take their crops. Don't take their animals. Don't take their gold and silver. Don't take anything. I don't want you to enrich yourself off of Jericho. No spoils. Destroy the city and walk away. Leave all the stuff. And admittedly, that would be very hard to do. I mean, think about it. You've been wandering around the wilderness for 40 years, right? During the battle of Jericho, a man named Achan had not followed God's orders to leave everything behind. At some point during the battle, if you want to call it with that, as they were just kind of for a walk, really, when they were, they were marching through or walking through Jericho, Achan had taken some gold and silver that he'd come upon as spoils of the battle. I mean, it's the spoils of war, right? That's just how this works. It always has and, and, and does to this day. It's one rule of engagement that everybody agrees on. Finders, keepers, losers, weepers. He takes some gold, takes some silver, hides, it, like, hides the treasure under a corner of his tent and keeps quiet. And nobody knows about it but Achan. So they go on to fight Ai, and Joshua's thinking, okay, Jericho was supposed to be a big deal, but God delivered that into our hands. It's been like reduced to rubble, so on to Ai. But Joshua doesn't know about the spoils in Achan's tent. And this is where the story picks up. We're in Joshua chapter 7. I'm going to start at verse 2. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho, because they just defeated Jericho, to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon to the east of Bethel, which means nothing to us probably, but this is history. This is one of those books of the Old Testament that we designate as history. So the details are important. And the first readers of the book of Joshua would have read this and been like, oh yeah, I know Beth-Avon, that's east of Bethel. I know exactly where that is. Like just north of Ellsworth, the other side of Moriahville. I know exactly where that is, that kind of deal, okay? Yeah, see? So they had a point of reference. So says, and told them, go up and spy out the region. So the men went up and spied out Ai. So he sends some men out to go out and do some scouting. This next city they're going to have to conquer as they take possession of the promised land. Verse 3. When they returned to Joshua, they said, not all the army will have to go up against Ai. In other words, these men concluded that Ai would be an easy takeover, easier than Jericho. Might be more traditional, but it's going to be easy. Send two or 3,000 men to take it. Do not weary the whole army, for only a few people live there. 
So like we checked out AI, it's nothing compared to Jericho, that, that, and that was a breeze. So we're, gonna, we're not going to have any trouble with AI. We'll probably be home before lunch on this one. Verse 4. About 3,000 went up, but they were routed by the men of AI. So Joshua took their advice. He sent a small group. 3,000 was a relatively small number. They went up and attacked the city of Ai, and they were routed by this little sleepy town, and they dragged themselves back to camp without a victory, and this is a shock to everyone. Verse 5. So they were routed by the men of Ai, who killed about 36 of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries. Again, someone reading this uh, in, in the original context would be like, oh yeah, the stone quarries, I know where that is. We used to hang out there after school. And struck, down, struck them down on the slopes. And at this, the hearts of the people melted in fear and became like water. So the soldiers come back to the camp. They've lost 36 men. They've been defeated. They've failed in their mission. And Joshua's like, what happened? And they're like, they're shaken, they're scared, they can't believe it. That little town just routed us, they destroyed us, how did that happen? And the Israelites began to question, so like, where is God? Like, I don't get it. Like, so God was there for Jericho, not here for, what is happening? Where is God? We thought God was on our side. We thought God was going to just make everything go our way, because they kind of thought just like we tend to. Verse 6, then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the Ark of the Lord. So the Ark of the Covenant that represented the presence of the Lord to the nation and to the people of Israel. Before the Ark of the Lord, remaining there till evening. And the elders of Israel did the same and sprinkled dust on their heads. And they're like, God, what happened? Like, what, what are we missing? Like, where were you? Why, God, why would you allow this to happen? God, God, like when you think about it, this is kind of your fault, okay? Because we were in Egypt and, and, like, and now like after 40 years, we're finally here and we thought like we were following you and, and Jericho was like a walk in the park, but now this, like what's the deal, God? Like what is, what is happening and why is this happening? So there's all this confusion. It's like why is this happening to us and why doesn't God answer our prayers? Verse seven. And Joshua said, O sovereign Lord, why did you... This is what we do, isn't it? Why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we'd been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Like, we should have stayed on the other side of the Jordan. We were fine over there. Life was great. Yeah, we loved it over there. In other words, God, look what you've done. Verse 8. Pardon your servant, Lord. I think he's warning him because it's about to get ugly. What can I say now that Israel has been routed by its enemies? The Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this. You know how we tell God about stuff that we think he doesn't know? He's telling God stuff he thinks that God hasn't thought about. The other people of the country will hear about this, and they will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. Wipe out our name from the earth. In other words, no more Israel, so way to go, God. What then will you do for your own great name? This is his way of saying, like, God, this isn't just an embarrassment to us. This is an embarrassment to you. Like, God, don't you feel embarrassed right now? Like, that we, your people, the people who represent you, the people who, when people say, which gods do you worship? We're like, we have no gods. We have no idols. We, we worship the one true living God, the creator of heaven and earth. You're the one true God, and we want other nations to ultimately embrace you. I mean, isn't this a little bit embarrassing for you? So what are you going to do about it? Verse 10, I love this. The Lord said to Joshua, stand up. What are you doing down there on your face? 
Stand up. What are you doing down there on your face? Joshua, why are you praying right now? Like, is this a time to pray? Joshua, stand up. What are you doing down there on your face? And I think if Joshua were to answer this, honestly, he would have said, well, I'm pretty much blaming you if you haven't gotten the gist of what I'm saying here. All these bad things that have happened, I'm just making sure you understand it's your fault. I'm wondering, kind of like, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do, God? That's what I'm doing down here in my face. And God's like, Joshua, stand up. What are you doing down in your face? This isn't the time to be asking me what I'm going to do. You can pray if you want, but let's change the tone. Let's change the language. Let's change the theme. Let's change the approach. If you want to ask me for wisdom, that's fine. That would be great, in fact. You want to ask me for courage? We'll talk about that. But if you want to just kind of keep the communication going while you're acting on the wisdom I've given you, I would love that. But if you're just going to keep asking me to do stuff, the stuff you should be doing, then let's wrap up this conversation. Get up off the ground. Let's go do something. Verse 11. Israel has sinned. This is God speaking. Israel has sinned. This is huge. It's such a giant idea. I'm not sure if I'll communicate it very well. Israel has sinned. And they're like, wait, time out. Because like, we know the rest of the story, right? It wasn't really Israel. It's just this one guy. And God, maybe you blinked and you missed what actually happened there. But it's just this one guy. And maybe, maybe you were dealing with something else really important while all this happened. It wasn't the whole nation. It wasn't Israel has sinned. It's just this one person. And God says, Israel has sinned. They, but it wasn't a they, it was a he. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They've taken some of the devoted things. This phrase, the devoted things, is used here because God told the nation, don't take any of the stuff. And it's like God is saying, I, I want you to treat it like it belongs to me. All this stuff that you're going to find in these cities, I want you to treat it like a burnt offering. You're, you're familiar with that. It's like a sacrifice to me. Just leave it there. Because I know you could enrich yourself with it, but it, it's an expression of your devotion. It's an expression of the fact that you're depending on me and not your own ability. So I want you to just leave it. It's devoted to me. The gold, the silver, the livestock, everything, it's all devoted to me. So says they've taken some of the devoted things. They've stolen. They've lied. They've put them with their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. So don't blame me, Joshua. They turn their backs and run because they've been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. Go. It's like, stand up. Your prayer request time is over. You can keep praying. I'd love that. Let's keep the conversation going. But you got to listen now. Maybe you could reflect on my greatness. Maybe you could reflect on my past faithfulness. So sure, we can keep the conversation going. It's time now to stop asking me to change your circumstances and for you to go do something. So Joshua, go. Do something. Consecrate the people. Tell them, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. There are devoted things among you, Israel. That is, there are things among you that you should have left in Jericho. And you brought them into the camp. There are devoted things among you. You cannot stand against your enemies until you remove them. Here's what, what is, is, is just so big about this little story. Here we get a glimpse into what happens in a community. In a community of two. In a community of family. In a community of, of business. In the community of a church. In the community of a nation. When someone acts irresponsibly. In this case, the whole nation is impacted. 
Israel lost a battle. 36 men lost their lives over one man's irresponsibility. Or in this case, we can just call it disobedience. Achan knew what he was supposed to do. Everybody knew what they were supposed to do. That's why he hid the gold and silver. He didn't flaunt it. He hid it because he knew he wasn't supposed to have it. He was supposed to leave it. So one guy acts up and gives into his greed, and the whole community is impacted. And when you read the story from a human perspective, it seems unfair. I mean, I can understand, God, you want to go after this guy. Maybe he's like killed in battle next time, you know, but why should the whole nation suffer because of one man's irresponsibility? The answer is this. That's the nature of community. That's the nature of connected people. That's the nature of a family. That's the nature of a church family. When one person is irresponsible, not only does he or she reap what they've sown, but everybody connected to them eventually reaps the fallout from what they've sown. And from our perspective, it's not fair, but it's still true. Like, it's not fair that you've been the best spouse that you can be, and your husband or your wife is irresponsible with their time or with the money or with their affection or their morality or their alcohol or their prescription drugs or whatever the thing is. You've done everything you can. You've gone the extra mile and over and over and over, and emotionally and financially and your reputation, like, you have been impacted now. And you're like, I've done all the right things, but why should I suffer for that, for their irresponsibility? Because this is the nature of community and it's the nature of irresponsibility. Your irresponsibility eventually becomes my responsibility. What you sow, I reap if I'm connected to you. And what I sow, you reap if you're connected to me. And we can talk all day long about whether it's fair or unfair. That's kind of irrelevant because the fact is it's true and we know it's true because we've lived it. We are, because we are connected, because we're connected to one another, your irresponsibility impacts me and my irresponsibility impacts you. So as members of a community, like this church community, regardless of the size of our community, we have, to hold each, we have to hold each other accountable to be responsible. And I know uh, we all have different personality types. And when I just said, hold each other accountable, some of you like wanted to just kind of melt in underneath your chair. Because so, some people are more comfortable with that idea. Some people love and thrive uh, like on confrontation. And, uh, but the message of the story is this, and we've all seen this lived out in positive and negative ways in our lives. And it's this, That not only does the irresponsible person pay a price, eventually everybody connected to them pays a price. It isn't something we should compensate for. It isn't something we should make excuses for. It isn't something we should just sit back and accept because somebody else's irresponsibility eventually becomes your responsibility and it affects the entire community. It's a communal thing. That's why we have to ask ourselves every day, am I taking responsibility for my life? Am I willing to step up and own my irresponsibility before it becomes someone else's responsibility? You can read the rest of the story in Joshua for yourself, but here's what happens. Joshua does exactly what God says to do. He quits praying right in the middle of his argument with God. He doesn't even say amen, doesn't sign off. He doesn't like, you know, over and out or any of that stuff. He just gets up and, and, and because God is like, you know, what are you doing down there? Stand up. This is not a time to ask me for stuff. This is a time to act. Don't hide behind your prayers. Don't hide behind some promises that are taken out of context. Don't hide behind some positive sentiment. Don't blame me anymore. You just need to get up and clean up the camp. So he sends a search party through the camp and they look all through the camp. And sure enough, under the corner of Achan's tent, they find Achan's gold and silver And they take it back to Jericho where it belongs. And they punish Achan as an example to the rest of the nation. And then they attack Ai again. And this time they conquer Ai and they move on from there. So here's a question for us. 
for you, for me. First of all, to all of us church people, are we hiding behind our prayers? Here's what I mean by that. Are you praying, asking God to do something, to change some circumstances when you really need to stand up and do something? Like if you've been praying about the same thing over and over and over and it's time to stand up and do something and take some action. I'll tell you how to know uh, when to stop praying about that and do something. And this, this might be helpful. But if God has already addressed what you're praying about in his word, then you don't need to pray about it. You just need to act on it. And as silly and as obvious as that might seem, um, you wouldn't believe the things that people sometimes say to me about that, the things that they're praying about. And I'm like, I'm not sure God's going to answer that prayer the way that you think he does. Because first of all, he doesn't repeat himself. Now he's covered that and you should go, probably go do something now. And I know I'm using hyperbole here because I'm not saying quit praying. Like, hey, don't pray again until you take or finish your doing what you got to do. Go do something. Don't bother praying anymore. The Apostle Paul said we should pray continually. So how do we reconcile the two? I think praying continually doesn't, doesn't mean we sit back in our prayers and keep praying till God does what we want him to do, especially when we could actually change the situation ourselves, especially if he's already given us the wisdom we've asked for about a particular situation. There's no need to keep asking God to change it uh, when he's given us the tools and the responsibility to change it. So please understand when I, when I say maybe it's time to stop praying, this is what I'm talking about. So maybe it's time to change the nature of our prayers, to stop asking God to do something. And even while we're getting up off the floor and doing something, our prayers can become more of a conversation with God rather than just simply bringing him our to-do list. Another way you can know whether you need to like pray or act is this, that if we're trying to pray your way out of something you've behaved your way into, then it's time to stand up and do something. So here's what I mean by that. If your praying is characterized by asking God for things, asking God to do things on your behalf, asking God to change your circumstances, maybe circumstances that you've created, if, if that's what we mean when you say you're praying about it, there comes a time when you just have to act now. Because here's the thing, and this is the thing we've been coming back to over and over in this series. Prayer is so much more than a button to be pushed. It's so much more than then bringing God our to-do list, the things that we need Him to do for us. I mean, yes, give us today our daily bread, right? But there's so much more to it than that. So there comes a point where it's time to stop uh, praying, you know, God, do this for me. And it's time, time to start rethinking the way that we pray and the way that we approach prayer. So in your acting and in your doing, in your taking responsibility for your circumstances, yes, continue to pray, but let your prayer be about communication with God, about your relationship with him, about who you are and about who he really is. Because if we're substituting prayer for taking responsibility for our actions, it just means that we are irresponsible people who pray. That's all that means. I mean, here's an example. If you've been abusing credit cards and you, you've given nothing and saved nothing, and you're, you're living a lifestyle you can't afford, and you go ahead, pray about your financial situation, absolutely. Uh, but I have a feeling God is not going to answer that particular prayer the way you want him to, right? Until you stand up and do something about the debt and the spending habits and your addiction to stuff and experiences and image, and you do something about the lifestyle and you scale back and you start to take care of the debt. And then you, in the same time, you learn to be generous and you learn to save and you learn to be responsible. Your situation in this case isn't necessarily a candidate for a miracle, but in this very situation, your, your prayer life could take on a whole new meaning. 
If in our praying, we confess our sin, we acknowledge our dependence on God, we worship Him as He is in our praying, and lean into our experience with prayer as a path to deeper intimacy with God, that's so much more than simply asking Him for stuff and to do stuff. Like if you're praying for your kids but not engaging with them, it's time to stand up and do something. If you're praying for your kids, but you're not training them and you're not having those difficult and sometimes awkward conversations with them about things that really matter, if you aren't raising the expectation and communicating those expectations, it's time then to stand up and do something and keep praying. But let's shift the focus of our time in prayer away from asking God to do things that we should have been doing all along. And let's bring our prayers to a place where we surrender. It's about surrendering our will to His, where we learn to live in submission to Him, where we lean into His power and His grace and His love. So, are you taking responsibility for your life or are you hiding behind your prayers? Like perhaps today God is whispering in your ear, stand up. Like, stand up. What are you doing down on your knees right now? Like, what are you doing down on the floor? Like, like go. And pray continually, but let's make it what it actually can be. And take responsibility for your life. Here's what we're going to do. Since I couldn't see really the sense in talking about this for 45 minutes or however long it's been, it's probably seemed like longer than that, and, and closing with a prayer without giving you an opportunity to take some action, uh, even if it's a symbolic one. So here's what I'd like to do. On each of your chairs today, uh, we placed a three-by-five card. In a seat back near you, you'll find a pen. Over these next few minutes, while I pray in just a minute, while we're worshiping together for the next little while with our voices and music, anytime through the end of this service, if God through the Holy Spirit has prompted you to stop praying the way you've been praying, to stop defining prayers, asking God for things and to do things for you, now it's time to get up and to act. I want to encourage you to take a pen and on that three by five card, write out an action step. Write something about the situation that you need to address in your life in your own words. You can write it in a secret code in case you're afraid someone might see it. I don't care. It doesn't matter. No one's going to read these. But in some form, write down the situation. Maybe write down your own name and write down an action step. And while the music plays for the next 20 or 25 minutes or at the end of the service, Make your way to the back of the room over there, in that corner back there. Put, our, put the cross out there today. There's a basket there, and just leave your card in the basket. Let that be a symbol of the action you're taking. Then I just really encourage you to be courageous enough to take the action. No one's going to read those. Honestly, we're just going to throw them out after the service. But let it be a symbolic step to represent kind of the action you're going to be taking in the days ahead. And then from this day forward... Let's be mindful to live as Paul instructed us to pray continually and in our praying to act and to follow the example of Jesus as he taught us to pray. Let's honor what God wants to do in this place. For these next few minutes, let's just respect the people around us. Let's be sensitive to the voice of the Holy Spirit in our hearts right now. And let's respond appropriately. Let me pray for us. Would you join me? Heavenly Father, these things are much easier to stand up here and say than they are to do. To walk out these doors and act. But as we read the story of Joshua, 
I believe some of us heard the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking to us. So wherever we land in this, would you please give us clarity to see things as they are and have the courage to respond as you've instructed us to respond. I thank you so much for the power of community, for the benefits of doing life together in community as couples, as families, as households, as friends, as a church. But I pray that those of us who claim Jesus as our Lord and Savior, that we would stand up and take responsibility for our lives while being mindful of who we are as followers of Jesus. And may our lives bring glory to your name. We pray this in Jesus' name.